You're listening to the Renewing Our City podcast, where we equip you to reach your world. And now your host, Matt Shaw. I'm so glad that you're back listening to another episode of the Renewing Our City podcast. Joining me, learning how to reach our world by sharing the gospel and serving other people in need. There's a ton of people with different backgrounds listening to this episode, and I just love the diversity. But if you're a pastor, if you're a church planner, if you're a missionary, a small group leader, just somebody stumbled upon the show and and just clicked on this, I think you've come to the right place. And I'm excited that you're here with us listening to this episode with Fledge Fiamingo. Fledge is one of those guys, and no, I didn't say Flamingo, Fiamingo. He's one of those guys that is going to just inspire you. He's going to help you learn how to disciple others in the church. Just a quick background on him. He grew up in South Africa with tons of segregation, discrimination, disunity. We talk about that on the show. He has military experience. He's had ministry through a safari, um, going to Africa and taking people on trips to see God's creation in God's creation. It's an amazing type of thing. He has a ministry called Sun Safaris Ministry, S-O-N Safaris Ministry, and he is just rocking it. His ministry through uh, discipling college students to traveling and speaking is just going to bring you something that you're going to love. So I hope that you enjoy it as much as I did recording this episode, and let's check out now my interview with Fledge Fiamingo. Well, welcome to the show. Um, he's sitting here with uh, Fledge Fiamingo. Pretty awesome name, but amazing guy. Just somebody uh, that I really look up to and respect. And Fledge is with Sun Safari's ministry, a ministry he founded just a few years ago, but really is making a difference in um, speaking here in the United States and globally working in South Africa, Botswana area. But welcome to the show, Fledge. I'm so glad that you're here speaking with us. Thank you very much. Well, I'm really pumped. Uh, we just had you speak at a men's retreat, and the guys are just really stoked just for, for getting on fire to serve the Lord. Had a great response. You spoke at our weekend services here at in Bettendorf. And I just wanted to say, can you tell us a little bit about what you do in your ministry? Wonderful. Thank you, Matt. Uh, yeah, I grew up in South Africa, and one of my dreams was always to be a game ranger. You know, in the United States, maybe someone wants to be the new point guard or the new quarterback for us. It's uh, a lot of it is about wildlife being outdoors, and so I had an opportunity to work for um, a very prestigious, one of the the highest prestigious lodges uh, in the world as a game ranger, and uh, that was way before I ever gave my life to the Lord. I came to the United States in 1999, and the more that I got into God's Word after being baptized and giving my life to Him in 01, the more I realized the parallels of the excitement of being on safari in Africa. And how that can tie into having a dynamic relationship with Jesus Christ. And so Sun Safaris just brings those two connections together. That's awesome. Can you tell me a little bit about um, a lot of, about you being a safari ranger? I want to get into where we're talking about how um, you know those parallels are to the gospel because they're really there. But tell me a little bit about being a safari ranger, what it takes to become one, and, and uh, what you had to do to get trained up. Uh, what is absolutely wonderful is um, before the safari ranging or guiding industry started, uh, anything to do with wild animals, private reserves, national parks uh, was always kind of a, the, the doctor. You know, you had the doctor who was a veterinarian, you had the researchers, you had the scientists. And so it was a very closed community and there wasn't very much interaction with just the, the public and teaching the public about animals. And so guiding opened up uh, probably in the 70s or so. And um, I wanted to grow up to be a guide. And, and what was awesome is I got to train with this reserve. And you have to know a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. And what is amazing is that I thought I knew a lot of stuff <laughs> on yeah. my day one of training. And on day one of my training, the most I learned was how little 
I really knew. And so you have to cover everything from trees to grasses to astronomy to reptiles to shooting to driving off-road to dealing with international guests. And it's just a, such an exciting environment because you get to drive an open vehicle with people who have never seen a giraffe in their life before. And then you get to show them and let them experience just Africa and Africa's wonder. And so to be a ranger is just, I think, one of the coolest jobs you can ever have. Oh, yeah. Every every kid would want to be that. I'm sure when you speak, you have all these kids come up and like, oh, I want to be a ranger someday and be able to do that. And is it dangerous being a, a, a park ranger? What, what's it like being around those animals? We watched a video where, you know, a full-grown uh, lion walks right by, a male lion walks right by the, the, the Land Rover. What, what's that like being around the animals? Is it dangerous? Is it is it scary? you nervous about it? You know, um you learn about the animals, you learn about what makes animals mad, and you learn about different traits. The truth is there's probably more respect between rangers and animals than between people in cities. Hmm. And as a ranger, you learn you know, the, the, the hallmarks of what is the first thing a lion is going to do when he's upset with you? What's the first thing an elephant's going to do when he's upset with you? And so um, we learn these traits, and my job is not to put us in dangerous situations doesn't mean they're not going to happen doesn't mean that an elephant might not come charging out of the african bush you know that you don't even know it was there in the first place um but the fundamental part is that to give an idea we might spend an hour and a half with a full-grown 600 pound black mane lion and we might spend all this time and we are 30 or 40 feet from this animal it doesn't care it's grown up with the vehicles it's come and gone it's not a zoo i mean this is a massive area where the animals are they do what they need to do. But the truth is, just like we wake up on a Monday morning and sometimes we have a bad day, you know, don't talk to me. Give me my coffee. <laughs> you know, we, we've spent time yesterday with this male lion and, and the next day we might find him again and he's had a bad night. He's been chased by elephants. He's had a fight with other lions. The hyenas have come and attacked him. And we could be approaching in an open vehicle and we could be two football fields away and this guy is growling already. Mm. My job as a ranger, whoa, something's wrong with the situation. Let's stop over here. We're not going to get any closer. And so the animals are wild, but we respect them, and in turn, they respect us. That's cool. Let's let's talk about the first part of your ministry, and, and, and it really got my attention because I think um, so much of mission trips and people going to other countries is focused on serving, and I think that's so good. And, 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 and working with the native people to just love on them, serve them, help the missionaries. But you had another element that is really uh, part of your expertise of working within God's creation, showing God's creation to uh, a lot of American Christians, a lot of Western Christians, where they're, we're just not used to being in God's creation, thinking about how big God is, what he does. Talk to the audience here about what, what you show in God's creation, some of those lessons, those things that you really point out to, to your guests in, in Botswana. What we do is, uh, my experience is that the United States, there's no lack of people who want to go and serve the Lord, and there's no lack of money to make it happen. It, it's just amazing. And so my interactions over the years is that there are a lot of people that will go and serve in Africa uh, which is a continent, not a country, just uh, letting people <laughs> know that. And we are way down. We're way down in South Africa, right at the bottom of the continent. But people will go and serve in Africa, uh, children's homes and, and villages. And, and, and who doesn't want to just travel halfway around the world? Go serve, go show the love of Jesus Christ. But then I get a chance to see a zebra or a giraffe. This is, this is awesome. And so in my interaction with people is that, they might go and serve for two weeks or, or three weeks uh, or a month or a year. And um, maybe on the application, they may have checked a box that says, yes, I want to go on safari. You know, I'm halfway around the world. I want to go and see some, some wild animals. And so they'll pack up the mission side. They'll get in a vehicle. And then they might travel six, seven, eight hours um, as a group. And then they get in a vehicle with 40 or 50 other people. They whiz around the reserve. They take a few photos. And, and they get on a plane and they go home. And there's nothing wrong with either of those. But the Lord put it on my heart saying, Fledge, imagine if you could take people over there. They don't, you don't have to reinvent the mission wheel. There's thousands of missions doing great things. And you don't have to reinvent the safari wheel because there's thousands of safaris doing amazing stuff. But imagine if we could take those two experiences and combine them as one. And so the uniqueness of what Sun Safaris does is we host 
small groups, no more than 10 people, uh, on a short-term mission, two weeks, and uh, we get to serve in a children's home, but all our teams get to stay on a game reserve. And me as a ranger, I then get to show them God's creation Mm -hmm. while they're serving and assist without the added cost and the added itinerary of hopping halfway around the world, doing God's work, and then maybe you might get to see an animal or two. Yeah, that's cool. What what are some of the lessons that you bring out in God's creation? What are some of those stories, those things that you are able to show people and it's just those aha moments where, you know, college students are going, This is amazing. This is phenomenal just to see God's wonderful creation in a new light. What is what is spectacular is um, people that have hopped across the world and, and gone to serve and then seen an animal, they'll, they'll tell me they've seen a zebra. And the zebra is a perfect one to answer your question. Because I'll ask him and I'll go, you saw a zebra? You took a picture. They go, yeah, yeah, we saw a zebra. And I said, what type of zebra was it? And they go, I don't know. I say, well, you know, there's, there's four different types. And mm. how do you tell the difference? And, you know, the standing joke is a zebra black with white stripes and white with black stripes. And, you know, is it a male or a female and all those things. So just the zebra, I mean, people that, that go over to Africa to see the zebra, and they not just know that it's a zebra, but it's actually a t- certain type of zebra, depending on its stripe pattern. What's amazing is the collective name of a zebra is called a dazzle. Picture a whole bunch of zebras standing together and you just have a whole bunch of barcodes, all these, these black mm. and white lines, and it's really, really hard to pick out one individual. Well, uh, little is known about um, predators, but m- as far as the eyesight goes, predators are colorblind. They don't see color. They see shades. Can you imagine a predator looking at a dazzle of zebra? It is really hard for them to be able to focus and look at and pick out one single zebra. So what do they do? Well, they storm the herd. And in doing so, maybe one falls away, and then they can focus on one. Mm. And so how does God communicate through the wonderful dazzle of the zebra? Think of a Christian community. It's really hard for Satan to pick out one individual when you've got a whole bunch of Christ followers worshiping together, communicating together, communing together, sharing life together. And so what Satan will ultimately do is he can't pick out one. He'll storm that group. Mm. And maybe he will break away, maybe she will break away, and now he can focus. And so Satan doesn't want people in community. And so a simple illustration, you've got a dazzle of zebra. It's hard for a predator to pick out just one. And how does God communicate through that? Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I, I just love your illustrations where you can take God's creation and, and just bring the biblical principles to that. And I think going on a trip like that with, with you just constantly just bringing this and bringing this and bringing these type of illustrations I think is pretty powerful. What's, what's some other stuff in Africa that you feel like people really learn and grow and grasp where you're out of your normal context and you're over there on a trip with you? I think... Um the lack of electronic devices, Ooh. <laughs> which is a great draw for people. We have electricity. People mm-hmm. can plug in their phones. They can plug in their laptops, their, their iPads, and all that sort of stuff. But there's very limited or no Wi-Fi whatsoever. And you don't find people sitting around on their computers. You don't find people sitting around on their phones. Mm-hmm. Um, and to be able to come off either doing a service project in a children's home or doing a conservation project on the reserve and you come and you, you have dinner and then you sit around the fire and you look up instead of looking down, if I would, you know, and you see the southern hemisphere night sky, that's just mind-blowing. And if you have an opportunity to teach them a little about photography, which is something I love doing, and you just show the expanse and all that, there, there's just a wonder that uh, Africa is just a, is just such a world away for people and for them to actually experience it minus the burden of having the connectivity of electronics is just eye-opening and i think that's just a massive draw and because we get to stay on a game reserve there's no traffic there's no sound pollution there's no light pollution there's no pollution at all and it's like when you wake up, you can hear the birds. At night, you can hear the hyenas call. You can hear the leopards call. You can hear the elephants breaking branches. And sometimes you don't hear anything. There's not a bug. There's not a breath of wind. There's not an insect. There's not a bird. There's nothing. And it's like it's just so dead quiet. And that itself is just, oh, my gosh, God is really, truly 
huge. Yeah, that's awesome. I, w- I want to talk a little bit about environmentalism and how uh, I know you're really passionate about taking care of God's creation. Uh, you, I've heard you said many times that you know man mess, messes up the world so much, and they've done that in Africa, they've done that here in the States, other, all throughout the world just with pollution and with uh, disrespecting animals. And how does that fit in as a Christian? I think a lot of times as Christians we can say, oh, that's not that big a deal. We don't need to recycle. And we're we're like the worst at some of those type of things. What what would you speak to Christians, believers, pastors about talking about the environment and not turn it into a political thing, but a, a Christian doctrine type of thing? Yeah. I think the experience that I've had with some of our uh, team members, a lot of them college kids who will get an opportunity to do a conservation project on the, on the reserve. And our approach both to the children's home and to the reserve is not, hey, we're coming and we want to do, or we're coming and you need, or we're coming and you have to. It's, when we arrive, it's like, what can we help you with? Yeah. And so the, 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 the children's homes do that for us. What can we help with? But on conservation side, we get to help with little things sometimes that the reserve doesn't have a lot of time to do. Mm-hmm. They've got bigger pictures. They've got fences. They've got erosion control. They've got big burning projects. They've got all this stuff. And we arrived in 2016 with um, – uh, they had just built an enclosure for the moving of rhino on and off the reserve, which is a huge uh, issue right now as far as poaching goes. And so they had finished this enclosure, and the enclosure had all these rocks, just these little tiny little pebble rocks all over the place. And they asked us just to go and kind of rake up. And for two days, we were raking and cleaning up all these rocks. And the team would go, why on earth are we doing this? This seems weird. This seems dumb. Mm-hmm. And after interactions with the ecologist on the reserve and the research officer on the reserve and the conservation officer on the reserve, the team gets to see the bigger picture. And the bigger picture is we want to look after what we have right now. And you're right, Matt. I do say man has messed it up so much. We have messed up the whole ecosystem in so many different ways. And for a Christian to come and on the way to picking up rocks, it takes them three hours to drive on the reserve and they pass three or four rhino on the way or they pass a herd of elephant on the way. And that's just mind-blowing. And then you're on your knees shoveling and moving rocks. You go, I get the bigger picture now because there are so many different moving parts that happen. And Christians can go in there and say, I love God. I love his creation. And now I get a, a, a turn to actually be part of just looking after a little piece of Africa. I think that's cool. Is there any type of evangelistic way that serving, um, just serving and taking care of nature, the reserve that you've been able to have uh, with sharing the gospel with maybe the other rangers or other um, um, people looking after the reserve? You know, um, I think Jesus did the best thing ever. And I'll just maybe label them as the 12 dumbest people on the planet. But Jesus did four very, very phenomenal words, spend time with them. Mm. And in doing so, he changed their world. And the interaction with the staff on the reserve starts right at the top with the CEO, the boss, the big boy. No one just walks into this man's office to have a meeting. You schedule your meetings he says things right off the bat. He's no mincing words. You know exactly where he stands, and he'll tell you if you're wrong. He'll tell you if you're right. And what's amazing is our relationship with this individual, the man at the top, has spanned six years. And what's absolutely amazing is that two things he doesn't really like, Americans and Christians. And our initial relationship was about money. How do I have a space to build something we can use as a springboard? And over our relationship, his interactions have been, Fledge has introduced me to some of the most amazing people I've ever met in my life. He said, I love what he does and how he does it. And I will endeavor for him to follow me to any reserve that I decide to go work at. And how that has trickled down. Not walking into his office with a Bible. Not telling him that he is wrong. Not having an argument about theology. All that we have done is we have arrived as a group. How can we help you on the reserve? Thank you for allowing us to go to the children's homes as well. And the Holy Spirit is just bouncing off the walls. And that has now trickled down to the research officers. 
down to the anti-poaching units, down to the people that are doing gardening, down, down, and it's like, oh, they're back again. They're not here preaching, but look what they do, and look how they treat each other, and the evangelism that just comes out of those four words, spending time with them, God has a way just to show up. And so that's what we will continue to do. And then when the questions come, then we'll be there to ask, answer them. That's really cool. And it's, it's also different with being, you know, you having a long-term relationship versus the trip members having a short-term relationship, just two weeks, to be able to show Christ. But that gives you the credibility where the community of Christians represent God and are really um, seeing God, how God just gives you the credibility and these people the credibility where you can speak into those guys' lives. I think that's so cool. Yeah. And uh, the, re- the return rate right now is pretty high with people going to serve with us. And I, do, and I tell teams, I'm the common denominator. I'm the one that they keep seeing. And so you, just, you are a representation of that. But when people come back year after year, uh, that just adds, I think, to the credibility of what we're doing. Okay, so... Here in the States, pastors, what, what can they do to help their church, you know, be more environmentally friendly, take care of God's creation? Even if they go on a trip, bringing that back, what can we do to bring that back to our lives in a daily basis? And does it, does God care about that? Does it matter to, should it matter to us? Or is it just kind of cool and, and trendy hipster type of stuff to do that? You know, the tagline, Matt, for Sun Safaris is, uh, where God communicates through his creation. And we mentioned, you know, just the zebra, just one of those things. Uh, but it's such a multi-layered tagline, if you would, because um, when we get to go serve, we too are God's creation, and he gets to communicate through us. Mm. And so you're talking about if I don't really care about looking after the honeybee or looking after the sunbird or the osprey or the deer or whichever else, then, then really how can we be so concerned about looking after everything else that belongs to God, which are human beings? Mm. And, and, and rightly so, we, we are God's ultimate creation. And what's amazing is that out of everything that God did create and the stunningness of what he did create, he loves us the most. And we are probably the most broken. And so when it comes to just churches and pastors, and quite frankly... Maybe that's that whole deal of look up from your phone maybe and go outside and look at a tree or go look at the flowers because man cannot make that. Man cannot make water fall from the sky like God does. Man cannot make the waves like God does. I mean, we have this floating ball in the middle of nothingness with no strings attached and it's just hanging there. (laughs) I mean, that's just amazing in itself. And so... And, and I appreciate you saying it's not a political thing. How do we look after? And it's God's creation is absolutely stunning. And Jesus Christ came down to save the broken creation, us. I mean, we are so messed up in so many different ways. And so pastors and churches, man, it, not only looking after people, maybe we can also venture out and just see how spectacular God is because it's all his. That's cool. What what about like seeing God in what we call general revelation instead of um, just hearing the message of God? But how can people maybe even ex- acknowledge there is a God, see God in his creation? What do you speak to that? Uh, wow. You know, I think most Christian nonprofits, most churches, maybe, maybe just organizations in general that may love God and have a relationship with Christ. They might have a verse that may define them. And I think Romans 1.20 is the verse for sun safaris. And, and in basic terms, ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. And through all these amazing things, you know, you can see God's majesty. You can see his creativity. You can see his excellence. And at the end of the verse, it says, you have seen this. Therefore, you have no excuse for not knowing God. Mm. And for me, what's phenomenal when you talk about being a ranger in Africa, dealing with high-end guests, people that own their own corporations, people that have thousands of people under them. Um, You've got the king and queens. You've got the president. You've got all these people. 
And what's amazing is you park Sir George 10 feet from a bull elephant, he becomes George. Africa Animals just has a way of leveling the playing field. That elephant, that lion, that leopard doesn't care how many zeros you have in your bank account. If you are out of line, then you're probably going to get taken out. It doesn't, it's not negotiable. And when you see the essence of God's creation, it is immaculate. And I just believe that there's an opportunity for the Lord to speak through that. You have no reason to not know God if, if you actually take the time to look. That's cool. I want to talk a little bit about reaching men. I'm pretty passionate about reaching men because I think if you get the men, you get the families. Uh, God loves everybody, but just for my heart, it seems like uh, that's something he's laid on my heart to really disciple and train up fathers, men, single men, married men, people that are broken, and uh, to be able to, to love on them, serve them, help them, but show them Christ. And what are unique ways that you've ministered to men and that uh, people listening to this could, could uh, do the same with some of your different experiences of, of your credibility, what you've done, how could they minister to men more effectively? Um, one of the things that I've done in my life is I was a drill instructor in the South African Defense Force. And every now and then my little drill instructor hat comes out and it's just very <laughs> direct. Um, and I, uh, I lead a bunch of college guys in my hometown and – my wife always says, you are so mean. I'm like, I'm not mean. I'm just direct. Because I think the men in the younger generation have probably been coddled and hand-fed all their life. And then suddenly the wheels fall off in their life and the girlfriend breaks up with them or some professor is challenged or whichever else. And the truth be known, they know what they need to be doing. But they don't want to do it. And they need someone to validate that and say, no, it's okay. You don't have to do that. No, you're fine. And I'm going, no, you're not. You need to step up and be the man that God wants you to be. And this is how you do it. Stop sleeping with your girlfriend. Stop drinking yourself to, into smithereens every Friday night. You know what you need to be doing. And I'm very direct when it comes to that. And I think men are very differently wired to women. Yes, we can sit around a table and talk about life. But for my guys, my college guys, quite frankly, they don't want to sit around a table every week in a circle talking about their feelings. They want to be out in a field shooting skeet. They want to be out at a river fishing for fish. They want to go and play ultimate frisbee. They want to, and I'll tell you what, when those situations happen, then there's a lot of ministering to be involved. And that has created so much camaraderie just amongst our guys. I mean, you just take them outside and you show them how to shoot a shotgun. I mean, their eyes just light up. And again, that whole thing boils down to those four words. Spend time with them. Because in doing so, you can have an opportunity to have a relationship with this person. Not just a round-the-table relationship, but building actually an intentional relationship beyond just hanging out. Where... When this guy, whether he's 18, 20, or 50, or 60, when he starts getting pulled away from the dazzle, if you would, that you have the actual recognition, responsibility, and the authority to grab him by the scruff of his neck and say, what are you doing? And without coddling them, without making them feel better about themselves, there's all this, the whole culture is, we don't want to offend anyone, and I don't offend. I just want to bring the truth because they know. And we need to stop patting them on the back and saying, it's okay. It's okay. We'll get through this together. It's like, step up. You know, and, and, and for me personally, I told this story uh, to you before, Matt. Um, we, my wife and I were part of a community group, and we, we would meet every Wednesday night with, uh, you know, six other couples or five other couples. And I, I was so busy doing ministry trying to get sun safaris going, that I wasn't going to have time to go to group that evening. And my wife came downstairs to the office and said, hey, you ready to go? And I'm like, no, I'm, I've got all this stuff to do. You know, I'm doing God's work. I've got to do this. And, she, and, and her, her heart dropped, but she left without me. And I was doing ministry. I was doing databases and I was doing all this stuff. And in 20 minutes, guys came knocking on my door, 
from my community group. They said, the ladies have gone out by themselves to hang out, and we have come to pick you up. There is nothing more important right now than to be in community. (laughs) And I was devastated. I'm like, Fled, you are such an idiot. But these guys came down. They banged on my door. They broke my door down. They did whatever they needed to do to drag me out of my little, oh, look at me. I'm doing all this. And I needed that. I didn't need a pat on the back saying, I'm sorry you're so busy. Good job. You're doing God's work. We're not going to see you. It was like, you're coming. This is important. And so I think from pastors and, and, and men, personally, I think we need to stop coddling men. And, and sometimes they might just need a kick in the pants to say, you've got to step up because you've got to be the man that Christ wants you to be. You've got to be the husband that Christ wants, or husband that Christ wants you to be and the father that Christ mm. wants you to be. So get your thingamabob out of bed on a Sunday morning, go to church, put the NFL game on the DVR, and you can play it later when you get back from church. But come on, man, we've got to step up to the plate. Yeah, it seems like to me, even being in ministry, a lot of, a lot of pastors uh, – listen to this show and 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 I think a lot of people can relate to the same thing. I know I I definitely can where you're you're not burnout on ministry, you're just so busy, you're so focused, you're driven and and you you deeply care about your family, but it's like you're just so overwhelmed. Sometimes the last thing you want to do is uh have your prayer time, go to small group because that's what you do all day. You're doing ministry, you're serving God, you're giving it all. And to refill that tank sometimes very difficult. I think that's pretty neat. Your your small group guys did that, and I'm I'm sure you were blessed by that. I'm sure your work still got done. It's mm-hmm. still important. Yes, it did. But just how much we need that time with God yeah. and with His His uh, our other church Christian family members. I think that's a cool story. Yeah, I definitely uh, I definitely have been in that position as well. And um, I I never missed group since, you know, <laughs> because that's important. I need to be beside my, beside my wife in our group where we are doing life together with five or six other couples that are doing life together. I don't think life happens for an hour on a Sunday. I think it happens for the rest of the week, and community group is where it is. And, and that made me realize just like what is important. And you're so right. Mm. The work still got done, you know, years and years later. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about rec, uh, racial reconciliation, and uh, I know we had a conversation um, uh, while we were on the men's retreat just talking about South Africans' revolution and how that uh, really impacted you. You were in the military at that time. Uh, you were a white male at that time as uh, a lot of the same things that we see here in the United States with racism, with people uh, dealing with classism, racism, sexism, all these things. It's not uh, it's not just a political thing, but it's really a spiritual thing. And why don't we talk just a little bit about your experience in the South African military, growing up in that culture, and how you see that helping people here in the United States, Christians in the United States. Yeah, the race card, you know, different countries, same problems. Um, and, uh, yeah, I went to, I was in the military in 91, 92, so the beginning of your first Gulf War. And uh, Nelson Mandela had been released, I believe, that year uh, or the year after. Uh, all the dates run together for me. But um, we just grew up in a very angry country. Uh, 70% of the country was black, uh, and I think 20% was white, and we had Asians and we had Indians and all that. And um, so apartheid just was just segregation on a on a national scale. So white people would live here, black people would live there. Well, black people could work where the white people were, but they had to go and live um, no, probably no different to like the reservations in the United States where you had the, the Pawnee and the Cherokee and, you know, pushed onto the reservations as such. Um, for us, we just threw all of them together. <laughs> so you had, you know, all these different tribes and nations and living in a, in a district or an area uh, where they would have to live. And um, it was just hard because the, we, we grew up just in that racial tension. Uh, my family, we never grew up racist. We didn't, we, we had friends that were very like right wing. Um, just absolutely like black people are this, white people, you know, just the whole supremacy thing. And it was, it was really hard, but, but, um, the, the uprising, um, to end apartheid was, was pretty horrific. Um, for us in our country, it's basically one man, one vote. And so basically the, the person who gets the most votes will become president. So you could have like 10 candidates or or 20 candidates and it's, or is that is that how it is? Yeah, I mean anyone could have put their name on there, and and so when you've got um, tribal delegates 
coming out of the, the you know, to be put as president. Uh, for example, if the United States opened up itself to one man, one vote, the Cherokee Nation, the Pawnee Nation, and literally the nation probably with the most people will have the most vote. And so the ANC, the African National Congress, there were just there were more causes than anyone else, and so they got the vote. And, um, and there was it's a very sad situation because the country was due to apartheid for so many years. The segregation meant that you know black people didn't go to school; you were denied education. So suddenly you're becoming a new country. Everyone gets a vote, but not everyone can read and write. And you talk about these little places where you got these multiple tribes. The intimidation was horrendous because people would be fast asleep in their little shack and someone would come busting in at 2 o'clock in the morning with an AK-47 and a machete saying, we are going to know if you don't vote for us. Therefore, if you don't vote for us, we're going to come and murder your family. We're gonna, you know. And so the, 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 the country was struggling in turmoil because you had all these different tribes vying for power, you know. And so um, there, there are some despicable things that the police did. There are some despicable things that the Defense Force may have done. But the truth is when it came to this tribal warfare, um, being in the military, we were there to try and stop them from clashing. And we were in a state of emergency. People had to be in their homes at 8 o'clock at night. Um, and then just the lynchings and the necklacings and that that were happening during the day, and, of course, there was very little that the authorities could do, police or defense force, because this was a change in South African politics. And the world's eyes were all over us with newspapers and cameras. And, and so uh, I remember a news report on, I don't remember if it was ABC or CNN or BBC or whichever it was, but they went to this, this little um, downtown park in Johannesburg where all these people that w w didn't have places to live, all these black people were fast asleep in the park. There's nothing else happening. It's in the middle of downtown. It's quiet. It's restful. And these guys are just fast asleep. And the world took a video of this and said, look how the white people are killing the black people. And they showed all these people lying flat inside this tranquil park. And the world was like, how can this say that? What's happening down there? You know, I don't think it's going to get away with it now with social media. But I'm very sometimes jaded about how news is formulated and who's reporting. Because I'm going, are you kidding? That's Hyde Park in Johannesburg. There's people roller skating on the outsides. And there's people going to work on the outside. And these guys are just fast asleep. But then edited it in such a way like, look at the turmoil. Look at the death. Look. Mm. Um, and so for a young 18-year-old, 19-year-old, and one of the fundamental changes, I mean, the African National Congress, which was um, Nelson Mandela's party, they were blowing up buses and they were blowing up schools in defiance of the South African apartheid, right? So they were, they were registered as a, as a terrorist organization. Nelson Mandela was caught. That's why he was put in jail for 27 years. And then he was released. And I remember my captain coming in when I became an instructor in the defense force. He walked in and he's like, who is the enemy? And we kind of put up our hands and said the African National Congress, the ANC. And he goes, no, 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 gentlemen. It's whoever opposes the government of the day. Because the ANC was coming into power they were going to be in charge of the defense force. They were going to be in charge of the mm. police. Can you imagine growing up, for you, Al-Qaeda is the enemy. Then he comes back to be president. And now the defense force, the South African military is now supporting this once called terrorist. You know, Obviously, it was in opposition to apartheid. Rightly so. Maybe the methods weren't the best. Maybe, you know, so... It was, um, it was definitely a change. So for 18 years, you grew up thinking this, and in one day you had to think hmm. they're not the enemy anymore. I mean, that was just a mind blow, you know. How, how, did, uh, how did you deal with people that were uh, dealing with the racism and, and the, the hate? How, how has South Africa recovered? Has it? Is it still very segregated? You know, my, my opinion is that um, during apartheid, let's say you have a pendulum of a clock, so you had apartheid to the white supremacists and the white regime and the white government and the white control. And the pendulum, instead of being in the middle with a democratic country, was just one side, all the white, all the white, all the white. And when it became a, 
if you would, democratic government. I think the pendulum swung past middle and just went the other direction, uh, just from an affirmative action perspective um, in telecommunications, in banking. Um, so, therefore, all people that had been working in jobs for most of their lives were fired hmm. to make space for black people. But before they left at being fired or retrenched or asked to resign, they had to train this person to come and take their position. And so they are trying to give more people jobs. But unfortunately, because of apartheid, they had no education. And so here you've got no education falling into positions you know, in the industry, in, in, in commerce. And obviously now, what's it, 20 years later or 26 years later or however, um, obviously now kids are getting into school, black, white, green, blue, it doesn't matter. They're getting into college. And I'm hoping that some way the affirmative action comes, you know, the, the pendulum comes back to the middle where it doesn't matter if you're black or white, if you're qualified for a job or a position, then we need to owe that to you. How have you seen ministries and Christians uh, help in that reconciliation? I know it's a long process. It's not easy. I know in uh, the United States right now, it seems like it's such a, so much tension. And uh, two, uh, two guys sitting here, both white, talking about this conversation. Obviously, it can be, uh, it can be awkward or, or, or feel, um, feel weird. It's just hard for us to talk about, but I think it's so important for Christians to think about this, and you have such a unique perspective. How can, how can Christians, or how have you seen Christians help with that reconciliation? Well, um, if you're referring to South Africa, uh, I couldn't tell you because I wasn't a Christian when I was there. Um, but I get to live it through my brother's eyes. He's part of a fantastic church. Him and his wife made a commitment to raise their kids in a Christian household, and what they are doing within the community as a community is amazing. I mean, I, I know it sounds really weird, but I had no black friends growing up. There were no black kids in my school. Everything was white, everything. Mm. And so, and again, we weren't a, a racist family. We weren't, you know, on the side of this is right. I mean, we, we just lived life. We were just a little middle-class family. Just this is how life is, right? Um, as far as the United States goes, the, the, it's very sad when I just see the race card get pulled so often because this country is amazing. This country is stunning. And I look at my kids and they, they got free school. They go to school for free. And they have an opportunity to go to college with a scholarship. And if they're really good at a sport, they might excel and get paid millions of dollars to do that. And I, I really get sad when someone pulls the race card and says, I'm a minority or I'm a whatever, and I'm, I don't have the same or we can't. And I'm going, come live in a third world country for a while. Because in this country, the opportunity and and. I might be absolutely way off course, but the opportunity for someone who wants to work and work hard in this country, man, you can, there's so much that you can do. And so uh, just to see the welcoming effect of churches and the integration of churches, and I, I have wonderful black friends here in the U.S., and that's hilarious because they'll come over and they go, fledge, 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 fledge. I'm black. I'm not African-American. I haven't even been to Africa. You are African-American, <laughs> you know. And it's just, she's like, I don't know where that stigma comes from, you know. And so um, it's, it's, for me, it's just a, it's a whole brand new world of I thought it was only South Africa and our horrendous laws that segregated. And you come here and it's like, oh, my gosh. It is so, and it makes me sad because this country is stunning. You know, there's so much opportunity. And then no matter what it is, the race card gets played and it's like, there it goes, just another can of worms that's opening up, you know? Yeah, uh, another guy at, at our lunch today was talking about Jonah and just how uh, sometimes uh, this was with a different population of the world, but just you want to be sitting under your sitting under your tree looking at the place and wanting God to condemn those people. And that's not anything of what God wants. He loves all people everywhere. And I think as Christians, we need to lead 
in that. And it's hard because um, people tend to want to be around people like them. And it doesn't matter what you are, uh, the type of food, the culture, the ways that you want, you want to gravitate towards uh, segregation, towards clubs, groups, cliques. Yeah. We just see that all throughout our society. And when we get to heaven, it's going to be all people from every tribe, tongue, yeah. nation, language, color. Yeah. And I just think that's pretty cool picture. And I think our churches need to strive to represent that. Our ministries need to strive to represent that. And it's not some white Christian college kids going over to help the poor Africans. I'm sure they learn just as much from those Christians, those people, uh, the people in Africa as they're giving out, helping, serving, Mm -hmm. influencing. Yeah. So you work with uh, college students so much and and you're able to, uh, really, I'm sure you just have an awesome ministry with college students. I haven't interacted you, with you in that realm, but talk to me a little bit about ways that you're in, influencing younger people, younger generation. We talked about men, but mm. what are some ways that you've really been able to influence uh, college students and people that are getting ready to go into the workforce, grow up, have families? What have you been doing in that realm? Well, I think... Um as far as just growing up to be men in Christ, uh, which I think is just fundamental, there's a program that I that I started when I was working at campus ministry at the University of Georgia, and I kind of called it the Wingman Program from uh, Top Gun. You know, I'm yeah. never gonna leave my wingman. And uh, so the men's ministry had about thirty or forty guys, but I had three college kids that came up and they said to me, "How can we help you do this? How can we help you do men's ministry?" And so. Um, I went to the Lord and I said, three, seriously, three guys, three. What about five? Five is good. You know what, Lord? Seven is a good number. Let's do seven. Can Maybe seven guys will step up to help me do ministry, right? And then I realized that Jesus had 12, but he only really had three. It's mm-hmm. like, oh, three, okay, here we go. That makes sense. And so we did this little wingman program, and they had two rules. The first rule, don't have a rule named after you. The second one was replace yourself. And I think even Jesus replaced himself. I think for these young men to understand that they are not at the top of the totem pole all the time. And they will not be at the top of the totem pole all the time. And so I would pour into these three guys. We had a way that we would pour into the rest of the ministry. And then they would have to pour into a younger guy because they were graduating and the younger guy would then take his space. And so we would flip-flop and I would continuously have three guys pouring into 30, 40, or 50 guys, which was absolutely stunning. And so I think personally, from a perspective of a young man who goes into the business world or goes into any sort of career or whichever else, number one, don't have a rule named after you. I just think that's, you know, no allowed to go out to the secretary i mean why you know (laughs) but i think it's important to know that um you need to replace yourself whether it's from a spiritual perspective or gearing someone else up to take your position one day because i think when someone says this company is going to fall apart without me i think there's a lot of ego involved with that which is sin in itself but to understand that I might be at the top of my game now, but what do I do to keep this going? And maybe not just from a secular workforce perspective, but from a Christ life-filled perspective. I'm pouring into my kids. I'm pouring into these guys. How do I help them pour into more guys that one day they will realize how can they pour into more guys? And when you've got a church of elders, how do you use that for those years of experience? And allow them to pour into the next generation. And I think that is, that is absolutely key. And the, the, most of the way that the men's ministry I, I minister to is them inviting their friends. Them being excited. And that just keeps them pouring into the new people which will then replace them. And then it just keeps going like that. Yeah, that's so on. And that's... Yeah. I love that where you, I never thought about that, but when you said Jesus replaced himself, not as the son of God, but as the, the person boots on the ground, Mm -hmm. he gave that authority. He gave that influence to his disciples and they gave that away. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's awesome. Yeah. I mean, he, come on, he chose the 
like I always say, the 12 dumbest people on the planet. And look where that led. He took these guys and he, he rebuked them and he molded them and he created and he answered and he taught them. And when he left, they took over, you know, with the power of the Holy Spirit. I mean, jeez, that's just amazing, you know. Oh, yeah, I love it. And, yeah. and I think that's, that's a key to a good leader is not just making everything about yourself but about other people. That will yeah. preach, man. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. Okay, so this might ruffle your feathers a little bit, but I want to talk about fundraising. Oh, I no. I want to talk about going on a trip. Yes. I hear a lot of criticism, especially from people that have never been on a trip. Um, and what, what they say is, I just want to send the money. The money could be used by the local people, the 4000 the 3000 the $2,000 that I spend to go uh, could be better used by just sending the money. Mm-hmm. Uh, how, how would you respond to that? Because you, you're somebody that's taken people on yeah. something that some people might say, um, you know, uh, mission education or, mm. or it's so much touristy or it's just kind mm. of a, a spiritual journey trip for you, not as much missions. How, how would you speak to people like that? You know, um, I think as you worded it, how many billions of dollars have been pumped into Africa? How's that helped? It hasn't. And maybe it just causes more of a problem because, hey, we've run out of money. Hey, Western world, can you send some more? Yeah, we'll pump another couple of billion dollars in. Where did it go? I mean, for years we've been pumping financial aid. Where, where's it gone? And why has it not worked? And so for someone to say, well, I'd rather just send my money, that's okay. And you know what? There are organizations that would happily say, Send me $4,000, send me 5000 send me ten. great. The, one of the fundamental parts of Sun Safaris is we are not just going to become a bank account to a country that is in need. I don't want to be driving up the road and people will go, oh, here are the rich Westerners again. Here we mm. go. They, what are they going to bring us this time? We do help fund projects. We do help school supplies. We do help all this stuff. Um, and so from my perspective, number one, not everyone has to go. I understand that not everyone is geared up. I want to travel halfway around the world. I absolutely get that. Some people are like, I am not a goer. I am a sender, but I'm going to send people. And other people are like, I'm not a sender because I have nothing anyway, but I'm a goer. And so from my perspective, just world travel gives people the gift of perspective. Mm. And so I don't want to go, but I'm going to send the money. That's the easy side. But to actually travel and hang out with people who have nothing, the gift of perspective is fundamental. And it's not just a case of I'm going to change a kid's life who might get a chance to go to middle school for the first time ever. But the people that go and serve, their lives are changed. And the debrief for our Sun Safaris teams are when the teams come back, they're on the spiritual high. It's amazing. They've had this brilliant experience and they, they served and they dug and they cleaned and they painted and, they, and it's all this stuff. And they get back and they see someone with, uh, complaining about their Starbucks coffee. And they get their spiritual chip on their shoulder going, you are such a glutton and look at you complaining <laughs> about your coffee. And, and I'm going, we have to teach you how to come back to America where you're not holding everyone responsible for the actions because, quite frankly, their life hasn't changed. Yours has. And also from the perspective of um, walking into a shop and, and someone says, um, Yo, you know, Fledge has had this amazing experience. They don't even know that I've left the country. And they say, hey, Fledge, how are you doing? And I've got this whole experience I want to share with them. It's going to take 15 minutes. And they don't even have three seconds. And it's like, hey, Fledge, how are you doing? Hey, I went to Africa. Oh, that's great. And they walk off. And then suddenly it's like, hang on a moment. <laughs> what do you mean? They don't care about my story. They don't care about where I've been. They don't care about my experiences. And then Satan has a way of coming in and going, ah, na, 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 na. And you're going, well, that wasn't worth it. I hated that. I went to Africa. I served these people. No one even cares when I come back. And then Satan just has a good field day. And so people can send their money. That's cool. They can send it to me if they really want, man. That's cool. But to give the opportunity for someone to get out of their comfort zone and go and serve someone on the other side of the planet, hopefully – if we do our job properly, when they come back, they can continue that grace. They can continue that, that attitude of, I'm going to serve. Now, maybe I can serve here as well. So 
what would you respond to somebody that says, I don't have enough money to go. It's too expensive. Forty two, forty three hundred dollars is too much money. How how would you respond to that? I would say, uh, welcome to uh, fundraising. And I teach and show each of our team members how to fundraise. And uh, and quite frankly, um, I think if money stops us from doing God's work, we may as well just stop right now. And all through Scripture, I don't think God called people to do anything. Um, Moses, Jonah, David, whatever. I don't think he ever called anyone to do something. And then he folded his arms and said, now go make me happy. I think God says, I'm putting this on your heart. I'm asking you to go and do this. And I'm going to make it happen. Mm. And the number one destroyer of fundraising or even going on a mission is procrastination. And if, if people just do the little bit that I teach them on how to fundraise from an incredibly personal perspective, the teams that I've taken of selfish, self-absorbed college students, they have surpassed their fundraising goal. Beginning of six months, they're like, I don't know if I can do this. With a little bit of training, a little bit of help, and remember, it's all God's money anyway. And you are not asking this person, you're asking God to ask this person to help you with this trip. You have all the information you need. And I'll tell you what, it's amazing because God wants to show up. And he's going to do it a lot of times when you fundraise through money. And it's absolutely amazing when you watch people go, I can't believe I did this. I can't believe that this happened. And I had two college girls in 2014. They raised together, the sisters. And they're like, I don't know how we're going to do this because you have got to raise uh, $7,600. And they did. And then they went the next year. And their mom was like, uh-uh, you're not asking the same friends. This is ridiculous. And they said, fine, we'll go ask. And they did it again from different people. And for me, it's like you need to go to those people you went to the first time. Because then it wasn't just this vacation. It wasn't just this, I'm just going to go over for an experience. It's like, what do you mean you're going back? Oh, Mm. wow. Maybe when you get back, we can have a, you know, and it's like. So the mission field is getting very saturated because everyone's going on a mission. Moms, granddaughters, grandchildren, everyone's going. And so, and so people are like, well, you know, the pie is just being taken up right now, right? Mm-hmm. My thought, number one, is God is so wealthy, we've got to figure out how to get the money out of people's pockets. And number two, when that pie, when all the pieces are gone, I believe God just makes the pie a little bit bigger. And so money should never be a determining factor of whether someone is going to serve like on in the mission field, whether local or whether national or international. That's cool. I just love your perspective. I think you have so much passion, and God's just using you in a mighty way. I, I just I saw it all weekend. I've heard it when you preach, uh, just the Holy Spirit's anointing on your life, and I just love what you're doing. Um, was there any th- last thought that you wanted to tell everybody, it's just something that's on your heart that you want to speak to this audience here? You know, God is just brilliant in his design. And it's amazing because we haven't even discovered much of it in the oceans or even, I mean, the moon is the furthest place we've traveled, you know. And God is just, it's just incredible. And stopping to see how a spider makes a web, man cannot do that. Or a flower blossoms. Man, if, if, if you ever doubt that God exists, just go outside and look at a tree or a blade of grass or listen to a bird because he is in everything. It's absolutely stunning. That's awesome. Why don't you uh, end the show with telling people how they can connect with you, uh, Facebook, Twitter, website, those type of things. If they want to find out more information about your ministry, booking you as a speaker or tri- going on a trip with you, tell people how they would get a hold of you. Fantastic. You know, one of the worst things that anyone can do with a company is have to spell their name because it's different to what people think. And we, the Sun Safaris, people go, oh, really? Sun Safaris, S-U-N? No, let me spell it for you. So Sun Safaris, Sun is in Jesus, is the Son of God. Safaris, because I was a ranger, um, and so it just made sense. So sunsafaris.com.org, that's our website. We are socially connected on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Uh, you can search me, Fledge Fiamingo. Not 
Flamingo, but I'm sure if you search Fledge, you know, whatever, um, you can get hold of us. And we have a ton of information on my website as far as events for me speaking and missions to Africa, all the FAQs, what we do, how we do. And so just Google it and you'll find us. Follow us on Facebook. Follow us on Instagram. And we just want to create an exciting environment for you to know God through his creation. That's awesome. Thanks so much, Fledge. And I hope you had as much fun as I did listening to the recording with Fledge. His heart just comes out when you get to see people coming to know Jesus. But I, I, I do think he's one of those guys that loves to, to, to grow and help the inside of the church community and disciple followers of Jesus, helping them to become more like Christ. They just hear that all throughout all of his ministries. If you want to find out more about Fledge, you can always go to the show notes, like I mentioned earlier, at renewingourcity.com forward slash zero one four. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, at Pastor Matt Shaw, or the show at Renewing Our City. If you want to email me a question or you have a comment, Matt at RenewingOurCity.com will get you there. Well, hey, until next time, we want to equip you to share Jesus and serve others in your own neighborhood and around the world. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Renewing Our City podcast. For more info about the show, check out RenewingOurCity.com and follow the show on Twitter at RenewingOurCity and Facebook.com slash RenewingOurCity. If you like the show, please rate and leave a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening to this podcast. And while you're there, hit subscribe so you don't have to miss a single episode in the future. We want to give a special thanks to John Smay Productions for producing the show. Now get out there and share Jesus and serve others in your own neighborhood and around the world.